If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. This week, Michael Shermer, founder of the Skeptic Society, puts forward his case for the importance of free speech. If you enjoy this episode, please like and subscribe, leave a review and head over to our website, iii.tv, for thousands more podcasts, videos and articles from world leading thinkers. Uh, so I'm going to talk about uh, free speech today. And uh, this actually does follow up on, on the earlier session I was involved in on truth. That is, what is the nature of truth? How do we know what's true? Um, the problem is, is, is we can't know for sure. Uh, and no one is smart enough to figure it out on their own. So we need to communicate with other people, thus free speech. That is to say, if we think of science as this empirical search for truth in which we use um, experimentation and empiricism and logic and reason and rationality to derive conclusions about the natural world that we assume is really out there. Uh, the problem is I can't operate on my own uh, in isolation to do that because I'm not smart enough and neither are you, neither is anybody else. So we need other people. All we have are our thoughts. So we have to communicate those thoughts with others. And the reason to do that is because um, there's a good chance we could be wrong in our hypothesizing and theorizing and guessing and, and just thinking about the world. So uh, we have to talk to other people and, and not just talk to them, but listen to them carefully to make sure we haven't gone off the rails. That is to say, I'm going to be arguing in this opening uh, session here that um, this idea of open debate, disputation, conversation, and that kind of free wheeling, um, dialoguing with other people uncritically, that is to say, no cancel culture here. We just want to talk to other people and they should be free to say what they want and we should be free to listen. Uh, because that is the key to how science works. And in this, that sense, before I dive into the arguments for free speech, that here I'm, I'm making a case for kind of the social nature of science. That is, w whatever the scientific method is, and it depends on who you're talking to about exactly how it's enumerated, uh, you know, observation and deduction and induction and deduction and prediction and testing and so forth. There's a social element to it. That is to say, um, we hope in the fullness of time to find some kind of consensus amongst the experts in a particular field about what it is we think is true, true with a small t, uh, provisionally true. That is to say, um, there's enough evidence for it that 
uh, it would be reasonable to offer our provisional assent uh, uh, with the proviso that we can change our mind if the evidence changes. Well, the only way to, to, to reach consensus is to talk to other people. So scientific communities have to have a certain kind of openness and freedom to speak their minds. And that's the basis of uh, peer review, for example, or open peer commentary, where the, say, article is submitted to some blind reviewers. That is to say, uh, they don't know who you are, you don't know who they are. So the people are free to speak their mind and not worry about offending somebody. Because the moment you start worrying about that sort of thing, you self-censor, you don't say what you're really thinking. And that's very dangerous for science in particular and for just trying to understand truth in general. Uh, because you might've gone off the rails and if somebody is afraid to tell you because maybe you have too much power, uh, you're in a position at a university or in a lab uh, in which they're afraid to tell you that they think you're wrong, then that's very dangerous. So that's kind of the basis of it. If you think of consensus science, not as a form of authoritarianism or democracy, because that's not what I mean. I mean that the people that are best qualified to understand a particular phenomenon uh, under study, say climate science, um, and they're competitive with each other and they have kind of an open marketplace where they can debate the merits of the different theories, say CO2 gases in the atmosphere and whether or not that causes uh, warming to increase. At some point over the course of years or decades, a consensus is reached that, you know, we most of us think X is the case. In this case with anthropogenic global warming, we think it's largely human caused and real. And uh, so you often see this figure like 97% of climate scientists think uh, AGW is, is true. These are the most qualified people who compete with each other and try to debunk each other in the pages of scientific journals. And what emerges is this kind of general consensus. Of course, it's never going to be 100%. That's fine. Progress is made in science. Again, through that uh, open debate, disputation, free exchange, marketplace of ideas, as it were. And, and of course, that's the, the basis of, of a liberal democracy. We all have to be able to be free to say what we're thinking. And then we come down to running the experiment, as it were, in this case, uh, having an election. So um, my latest book is on this subject, Giving the Devil is Due. The devil is whoever disagrees with you. And what the devil is due is their voice, their thoughts. They should be free to think and say whatever they want. Uh, because, um, well, I'm going to enumerate those in uh, 10 different reasons. So here is, here is the kind of my articulation of why we should give the devil is due with that background on how science works. But I would apply that to anything. So um, that is to say, the moment you decide, um, I don't think everybody should be free to say whatever they want. I think we should have some um, uh, some censorship. Okay. Well, who decides which speech and thought is acceptable and which is unacceptable? You, me, the majority, the thought committee, the language police, the control of speech is how dictatorships and autocracies rule. We must resist the urge to control what other people think and say. Second reason, what criteria are you going to use to censor somebody's speech? Are these ideas that I disagree with, ideas that you disagree with? Uh, are they thoughts that differ from the mainstream uh, thoughts of, of the community? 
Uh, is it whatever the majority says is true? That's that's the the speech we're going to uh, respect, and then anyone who dissents from that, uh, we're going to censor. The problem with that is um, what's called the tyranny of the majority, uh, which is why we do not have, at least in, in the United States, a direct democracy. The problem with the direct democracy is the tyranny of the majority. You just need 51% to say, well, we think slavery is a good thing, so let's bring it back. No, we're not going to do that. And there's reasons we're not going to do that. And it doesn't matter how many people think. So we have a representative uh, democracy, a republic, actually. Anyway, three, it's not just the right of the speakers to speak, of course, but it is. But more than that, it's the right of listeners to listen. So when college students deplatform uh, speakers uh, that have been invited to come to a campus to give their point of view, some new theory or topic or book or whatever and uh and the students protest and the and the speech is canceled or perhaps even worse the speaker actually goes there flies there and has to stay in a hotel and so forth and then shows up to give their talk and and then the um the mob uh silences them um through you know noisemakers and shouting and chanting and so forth well it's not just violating the rights of the speaker to speak, but the audience to hear. Maybe a lot of students came there to hear what this person has to say. Now, most college campuses are pretty liberal and some college campuses uh, bring in conservatives just to, so the students can see what conservatives think, you know, what half the country thinks. Maybe it's good that they should know what half the country's thinking. And, uh, and, and so by silencing um, the speaker, then you're robbing your fellow students of their right to hear what that other perspective is. Just because you're offended, uh, so what? Too bad. Um, okay, number four, and here the next couple of points, I'm uh, kind of echoing John Stuart Mill's arguments from his classic 1859 work on liberty. We might be completely right, but still learn something new in hearing what someone else has to say. Or five, we might be partially right and partially wrong. And by listening to other viewpoints, we might stand corrected and refine and improve our beliefs. Or six, we might be completely wrong. So hearing criticism or counterpoint gives us the opportunity to change our minds and improve our thinking. No one is infallible. The only way to find out if you've gone off the rails is to get feedback on your beliefs, opinions, and even your facts. Number seven, whether you're right or wrong, by listening to the opinions of others, we have the opportunity to develop stronger arguments and build better facts in our positions. If you know only your own position, you do not know it as well as you would if you knew your uh, opponent's position. Here, this is John Stuart Mill's famous um, line from On Liberty, he who knows only his own side doesn't even know that. And uh, so here I use an example um, of the abortion issue. So, you know, most of my students at uh, Chapman University where I teach uh, are liberal. So they're pro-choice on the abortion issue. And, you know, I like to ask them, what are the best arguments that the pro-lifers have? Well, frankly, most of them have no idea what the pro-life arguments are. Uh, or if they do, or if they're pro-lifers, they keep their mouth shut. They're afraid to say something. Okay, not good, not good. So, you know, I have them, um, you know, watch like a Ben Shapiro or a Dinesh D'Souza video defending the, the pro-life position on the abortion issue. And um, so even if they end up maintaining their pro-choice position, 
which I am. I'm a pro, I'm pro-choice, and um, and uh, but I know what the arguments are that conservatives make, and that means my pro-choice position is stronger than it would have been if I didn't know what their arguments are. So this is this is John Stuart Mill's argument for this. You you have to know what the other side is thinking, and it, even if you don't budge an inch, uh, your arguments are much stronger than they would have been. Right. So. Um, couple of issues. I'll give a couple of examples of this. Holocaust denial and creationism. These are two uh, communities I've uh, interacted with over the decades and uh, largely debunked, largely completely debunked their claims. Nevertheless, I learned a lot from them about both the Holocaust and um, the theory of evolution, but more importantly, what Holocaust deniers are actually arguing and what creationists are actually arguing, which is not really about the Holocaust or the theory of evolution. So it turns out to be an interesting thing. But in the process of doing that, my understanding of how the Holocaust happened and why and so forth, my understanding of the theory of evolution was that much stronger by knowing what the people who don't believe it think. That's an important point that is, I think, largely lost on liberals today. So the reason uh, I, I wrote this book mainly is because I'm concerned that you know, when I was in college, it was and after graduate school and then my early years as a professor, you know, it was conservatives that were censorious, that were worried about rock song lyrics, for example, or uh, Madonna's videos and that, you know, this, this is speech, this is expression of thoughts and feelings and emotions through art and music and so forth. Um, and it was conservatives that were thinking, oh, this is a form of speech and it's dangerous. It's going to rot the minds of our youth and it's going to pull down the moral fabric of America and so on. And I railed against that. Well, now it's kind of reversed. <laughs> now, ironically, it's the conservatives who are making the strongest defenses of free speech. And it's liberals saying, oh, no, we got to censor people, silence people, cancel people. Uh, the hecklers veto when we go in there and make noise so they can't speak. It's liberals making that argument, which is the exact opposite of the way it used to be. I mean, UC Berkeley is the birth of the free speech movement. And I remember when uh, the Holocaust denier David Irving went there to speak, he was, he was being given a, um, it was like some kind of award or something for free speech. I mean, no, no, it was that the, the I think it was the free speech um, group there was bringing him in just to kind of test as a test case. And, you know, all hell broke loose. You uh, see Berkeley, where the free speech movement began. I mean, that's crazy. So, um, you know, this is not good uh, because this is how you learn and grow, even from something uh, like that. And by the way, parenthetically, um, I, I wrote another essay in this book on David Irving himself, whose defense I came to uh, when he was arrested in uh, Austria for going there to give a speech uh, on World War II. Of course, you know, everybody that was going to hear the speech knew that it had an underlying undercurrent of, you know, Holocaust revisionism, as he calls it, or denial, as I would call it. But he didn't even get to give the speech. He didn't even get to go to give the speech. He didn't even get out of the airport, except to be taken to jail and then to the courthouse, where he was convicted of a thought crime. Okay, just, just, just think about this for a second. This, a, a person goes to another country and he's flagged at the airport when he, they scan his passport that this is a dangerous person. We should not let him in our country because he might say something, might. So at that moment, he's just thinking a thought 
and he's arrested for thinking a thought. Okay, that's very Orwellian. That's very fascistic. That's very scary. Now, again, to be clear, I think David Irving is completely wrong in his understanding of the Holocaust and his views on it. And I have written extensively to show exactly why he's wrong here and here and here and here and thoroughly debunked him. Nevertheless, I wrote a letter to the judge saying, you know, let this guy out of jail. This is crazy. This is not what, you know, Western liberal values are all about. Let him say whatever he wants to say and then debunk him. The truth of the matter is most of these claims, these people and, and their claims that, that get censored like this, they're, they're very small. They're not very influential. You know, the creationist movement, the Holocaust denial movement, these have been largely squashed. They have very little uh, influence uh, anymore on education and scholarship. Uh, creationism more still than Holocaust denial, but nevertheless. But by, by going after them, not for their ideas like we do at Skeptic and showing why they're wrong, but instead just silencing them or getting their book contracts canceled and so on. It makes them martyrs amongst the people that were uh, admiring them. And then that grows their audience and they get even bigger. I mean, David Irving became, you know, world famous, whereas he was just kind of a, a minor um, historical, historical writer, not historian professionally, but a, but, a, but, a, but a good historical writer until he kind of went off this, down this pathway toward Holocaust revisionism and the denial. Uh, nevertheless, I, I still would defend him uh, because that's just, that's just wrong. I mean, there are places uh, where countries where, you know, Holocaust denial is illegal, illegal to uh, voice your opinions on this. This is crazy. Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Austria, Germany, France, uh, and a few other countries. Um, it's illegal. Okay, this is very dangerous. This is not good. Okay, continuing with my list. Um, Arguments made, this is number eight of my 10, arguments made in favor of censorship and against free speech are automatically gainsaid the moment the speaker speaks. Otherwise, we would be unaware of their arguments if they were censored. Number nine, freedom of inquiry, a form of free thought and free speech is the basis for all human progress because of human fallibility. We are all wrong some of the time and many of us most of the time. So the only way to know if you've gone off the rails is to tell others about your beliefs so that they may be tested in the marketplace of ideas. In science, this is called conjecture and refutation or hypothesis testing. Okay, that's Karl Popper, the philosopher of science. That was the title of one of his bo uh, books in the 1950s, Conjecture and Refutation. That is to say, I conjecture X and then the burden is now on you to try to refute it. Not the burden, but you know, th this is the... This is the open dialogue we have, uh, and we're going to get into this debate and disputation and argument about it, and we'll see what happens. You know, that, that's kind of what it's all about, right? So if you censor people, you're going to stop that, that very process um, of working. So, you know, this idea of Popper's idea of falsifiability, that is what defines science is if, if you can't test it, if you can't falsify it, it's not really science. It's maybe meta-science or metaphysics or philosophy or reason. It's something, but it's not empirical science because if we can't get at it, so such that you know, I have my opinion, you have your opinion, but we got to have some tests that we agree. Okay, the outcome is going to determine, you know, what's true about it. 
Uh, so you have to have that, and that requires free speech, of course. Ten, my freedom to speak in dissent is inextricably tied to your freedom to speak in dissent. If I censor you, why shouldn't you censor me? If you silence me, why shouldn't I silence you? Once customs and laws are in place to silence someone on one topic, what's to stop people from silencing anyone on any topic that deviates from the accepted canon? This final argument against censorship and the source for the title of this book, Giving the Devil His Due, was well articulated in Robert Bolt's 1960 play, A Man for All Seasons, based on the true story of the 16th century Chancellor of England, Sir Thomas More, and his collision with King Henry VIII over the monarch's divorce from Catherine of Aragon. In the play, a dialogue unfolds between More and his future son-in-law, Roper, over the changing of the law. Roper urges him to arrest a man whose testimony could condemn Moore to death, even though no laws were broken. So Moore responds to this, and go he should if he were the devil himself until he broke the law. And Roper says, so now you give the devil the benefit of law? And Moore says, yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Roper says, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. And Moore responds, oh, and when the law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, and if you cut them down, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. Just think about that for a minute. Um, let's let's use this example of Holocaust denial. Let's let's say uh, I'm a historian by training, uh, and let's say I have some doubts about uh, the number of Native Americans who uh, died in the uh, genocide since Columbus came here in uh, 1492. How many were here? How many died of disease? How many died of uh, of, uh, of uh, European uh, weapons and and, and, and direct genocide versus disease. Okay, well, this is a, a debatable point. I mean, no one's in total agreement exactly because we don't know how many were here, 90 million, 50 million, you know, the number bounces around depending on who's doing the estimating. And then how many were killed? 90%, 80%, you know, 95%. I mean, the numbers, again, they bounce around in there. That's normal. Okay, but what if I'm say, you know what? I, I don't think it was 50%. I think it was... 20%. I think it was you know, not that big. Uh, so what does that make me? A Holocaust denier? A revisionist? Should my speech be silenced because I'm offending somebody? You know, it, it, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I won't know if I'm wrong until I publish and speak and give a talk and, and express my hypothesis that I think it was 20% of Native Americans who were killed rather than 90%. And then I see, you know, oh, okay, you respond to my theory and, and you show me, well, here's the data and here's the arguments. And then I can, you know, maybe I deny the, the facts in front of me. This does happen. You know, too bad for me. But, uh, but what if I'm right? Or what if I'm partially right? What if it's not 20% and my estimate's too low and your 90% is too high? It turns out it's 50%. The only way to find out is for everybody to have their voice, okay, even if it's offensive, okay. All right, so that's my uh, that's my case for um, the uh, 
uh, basis of free speech, I want to give you another example of this. Um, from this comes from my friend uh, Nadine Strassen, who is the uh, president of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, in her book, Hate: Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. That is, hate speech should be countered with more speech, not censorship. She writes, she talks about in this book, during the 1830s, many Southern states enacted laws to protect their citizens from hearing abolitionist speech, arguing that it could lead to slave rebellions and violence. And that abolitionists, quote, libeled the South and inflicted emotional injury in the words of South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun. In the 20th century, civil rights activists opposed viewpoint-based censorship, knowing that their call for Black Americans to be granted the same rights as white Americans could be considered hate speech by a great many Southern citizens. And there are countless examples of autocrats, theocrats, and dictators of various political stripes silencing their critics by enacting hate speech laws. As the ACLU noted in their defense of neo-Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois in 1977, such laws could have been used to stop Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, con confrontational march into Cicero, Illinois in 1968. As Nadine Strassen concludes, quote, notably the asserted harms that abolitionist speech was feared to cause, libel, emotional injury and violence, are the very same harms that are now cited in support of hate speech laws. Hate speech laws, Strassen concludes, undermine universal principles of liberty, equality, and democracy. So just think about that, that um, in the name of hate speech, in the 19th century, Southern politicians could have argued, we can't let these slavery abolitionists come down here and give their sermons and speeches because that might lead to violence. Well, where would the abolition of slavery have been without the voices against it? Where would the civil rights movement have gone in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s uh, had people like Martin Luther King Jr. not been given the opportunity to speak and been silenced because they may cause people to become, become violent? Um, so this, this is the problem of going down that pathway. It's easy to find somebody you don't like uh, to silence. This from uh, Christopher Hitchens. What would you do if you met a flat earth society member? Come to think of it, how can I prove the earth is round? Am I sure about the theory of evolution? I know it's supposed to be true. Here's someone that says no such thing. It's all intelligent design. How sure am I in my own voices? And as he says, which I elevated to a theorem, don't take refuge in the false security of consensus. Now, consensus science I talked about before only works if the consensus can be challenged all along the way before the consensus is reached and especially after the consensus, just in case. Um, so here's John Stuart Mill's classic line. This is his famous, uh, if all mankind minus one, quote, if all mankind minus one were of one opinion and only one person of the contrary opinion, Mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing that one, uh, justified in silencing mankind. But the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. 
If the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose. What is almost as great a benefit, the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. Luxembourg said, the freedom of speech is meaningless unless it means the freedom of the person who thinks differently. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Please remember to like and subscribe and tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.